0: You'll notice in the lobby, there is a large blue sheet hanging as a backdrop. We'd like to take pictures of your family so that we can create a new church directory as a part of our celebration of our 125th anniversary, which is on September 10th. So it's time to start calling to make reservations for the banquet. The banquet is gonna be $10 a person to attend. It will be at one o'clock after the morning service. We have special speakers coming and a whole month of activities planned during the month of August to uh, build anticipation toward a mortgage burning and a celebration. And when we talk about celebrating 125 years, what we're celebrating is the faithfulness of God to this place for 125 years. And that's worth celebrating. He has brought us through amazing things across the years to this day. And we are so grateful for all that he's done. So... Be a part of the celebration. There is a directory on the tables in the back of addresses. If your names are not spelled correctly or you've changed your cell phone number or if, or if we have a computer error and your name didn't get printed on the list, add your name to the list with your address so that we can make sure everyone can be included in the directory uh, that we'll publish for that event. We've been spending time in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ to John and we're going to continue this morning. Over the past several weeks we've talked about the fact that an over overemphas- an overemphasis on the spirit of boundary keeping can cause us to lose our passion for Christ and our love for others. The church at Smyrna had a spirit of steadfast faithfulness but it would have been easy for them to slip into a spirit of consumerism given all that they faced. The spirit of the church of Pergamum was marked by a spirit of accommodation. Many were compromising. This morning we traveled to Thyatira, Thyatira. More than 30 years ago I sat in a church board meeting at a particular church and the pastor began speaking about a particular need of a family in the church. They needed to find housing, their lease, the lease on the house that they were Uh, renting was going to evaporate because the owner was selling the house out from underneath them. They needed a new place to stay. So the pastor looked over to one of the members of that board who was a real estate agent and said, Bubba, these folks need a good house. Give them a good deal. And Bubba looked back at the pastor and said, well, pastor, church is church and business is business. I thought about that comment a little bit. What what was he saying? I mean, the room got awfully quiet, as you might imagine. But I think we understood what was being said. I think what was being said by Baba was there are no considerations given to the members of the body of Christ when it comes to business. I think the philosophy behind that was this. Faith and church and God are one part of life, and it's best to keep those things separate from the world of business, which is evaluated in terms of profit. There's a sense of division between what is sacred and what is secular. And this idea has a bearing on the church of Thyatira. This is Revelation 2, 18 to 29. Revelation 2, 18 to 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, faith, service, and endurance. I know that your latest works are greater than the first. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet and is teaching and beguiling my servants to engage in, in sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her immorality. Beware, I am throwing her on a bed, and those who commit adultery with her, I am throwing into great distress unless they repent of her doings, and I will strike her children dead And all the churches will know that I am the one who searches minds and hearts. And I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. To everyone who conquers and continues to do my works to the end, I will give authority over the nations to rule them with an iron scepter as as when clay pots are shattered, even as I also received authority from my father. To the one who conquers, I will also give the morning star. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In general terms, this church is being commended for their good works. Thyatira is the least important city among all of the ones that we've discussed so far. It was known for the bronze that it replaced, it, it, uh, that it created based on the natural resources that were in the area. This allowed the artisans of the area to make impressive weapons. Thyatira became a city of businesses organized around trade guilds. You may remember the businesswoman Lydia, who is mentioned in Acts 16 as a woman who traded in purple cloth as being from this city. To do business in this city for the most part, and in order to live prosperously, you almost had to be a member of one of the guilds. And as you can imagine, the guilds had rituals, and were often dedicated to a particular pagan god. It was believed that one of the primary gods to which the trade guilds were dedicated was the god Apollo. And the people of Thyatira believed that the emperor was the reincarnation of Apollo. And that meant that both emperor and Apollo were hailed as sons of Zeus and worshiped as a part of the guild practice to participate in the business in the city? Well, you did business at the guild hall. The guild meetings typically began with the pouring out of a cup of wine as a libation, an offering to the gods, and then the meal would eventually become a raucous party influenced by the moral laxity of the Roman culture. So the difficulty in Thyatira is this. How much of the pagan culture could you sort of ignore or tacitly accept? And how much, if you're a Christian, needed to be avoided and condemned? You know, this isn't the first time we've read about food sacrificed to idols in the New Testament. I mean, Paul talks about this back in 1 Corinthians 8. Only in rare cases, Paul says, should we openly disapprove of the customs of the society when we're outside the church. In many cases, where the idolatrous connections of what is being offered in the market is not known to us, it's okay for Christians to buy that kind of meat because things that go in are not what corrupt the Christian. it's what comes out, what, what issues from the heart. But he says, when questions of conscience are raised, then we have to think more deeply. When practices are obviously tied to particular false gods, those situations must be avoided. And so the question in Thyatira is, whether we participate in the guilds in order to enhance our status in business, or whether we raise or acknowledge questions of Christian participation in activities that may not be purely acceptable to the Christian faith. I don't know about you, I've I've spoken to some Christian restaurant owners, some from this church, who really wrestled with the need to have a liquor license in their establishment. They said, you know, we don't really want to serve liquor, but if we don't get a liquor license and sell liquor, we will never have a profit margin large enough to stay in business. And so either we get a liquor license and give our customers what they want, or we can't stay in business and then what do we do? They're, they're hard questions. The problem of living in two different worlds at the same time is certainly still a problem today. But there, there's something different about this particular letter that we should take time to note. In previous letters, the threats were mostly coming from the outside. And the question was, how does the church participate out here? But in this particular letter, the threat's coming from the inside. There's a Jezebel in their midst and she's teaching a particular philosophy. The Revelator addresses a woman in the church named Jezebel. And whether that's her real name or it's a name assigned to her because of her character, We don't know for sure. But it seems like she was teaching a kind of philosophy based in Greek philosophy that went something like this. We humans are made up of two parts. One part spirit, one part flesh. Only the spirit is immortal, so the flesh doesn't really matter all that much it's gonna decay anyway. No real need to pay much attention to what happens in the flesh. What's important is spirit. And if the soul of the believer is right with the Lord, it doesn't really matter what happens in the body since it's gonna die anyway. And really the body's basically evil. It only brings trouble and so we just ignore it. So feel free to join the guilds and do whatever they do there because what you do in the flesh doesn't matter. and after all, if you're present in the guild, you have a chance to witness for Christ while you're there. Though I don't know exactly how that would work easily. Because witnessing for Christ is something about like demonstrating the character of Christ. And so if you're not imitating the character of Christ, can you really witness in that kind of a situation? I don't know. But I don't think so. Can you hear the lore of the temptation in Jezebel's kind of teaching? Finding a way to rationalize what my flesh wants to do based on the expectations that come from the outside while pretending that how I act doesn't really matter. This idea that I can be right in spirit but wrong in body is not a Christian ethic. That's not who we are. And that, and that reality crosses all kinds of different activities in our life. Make money any way you can or indulge in anything your body wants to enjoy and forget about the consequences of your actions because only spirit matters. And now that you're part of a church fellowship, your entrance into your eternal home is guaranteed anyway. So... You know, no good Christian honestly believes that what you do in the flesh doesn't matter. But there are lots of conflicted Christians who live like a little bit of compromise is no big deal. I mean, after all, we need to be in places where people need the Lord. So our need to be in places where people are that need the Lord so we can influence them means well, we have to sort of go along with what they're doing and maybe we do what they're doing and and this slope sort of slides. Does the truth that we need to be with non-Christian people really mean that we have to do what non-Christian people do in order to connect with them? No, it doesn't mean that. I mean, after all, we remember that we're called to be in the world, but not of the world, right? We remember that. And that should undergird our thinking in this area. What it feels like is this. It feels like some of the folks in Thyatira, and especially those listening to Jezebel's teaching, are saying, I have my faith all carefully sealed away in this compartment of my life, and my practices in the business world or in any other part of my life are completely separate. You've heard pol- political candidates say, I'm a person of deep faith, but I do not let my faith convictions influence my political agenda. Well, what is that? Is that like saying, oh, by the way, I'm schizophrenic. You know, I, um, I, I have deep convictions, but I'm not gonna act on them. What? What is is that? That's that's compartmentalizing, keeping my faith over here in this compartment and my business over here, my political agenda, and not allowing them to speak to each other. That's a picture of compartmentalizing faith. And the spirit of Thyatira is the spirit of compartmentalization. And Christ, through John, speaks very harshly to that kind of thing by describing this particular local Jezebel of a prophet as a Jezebel, it's likely that that, um, the Revelator is comparing the prophet in this church to all of the words of the Old Testament prophets. Do you remember how many times the Old Testament prophets call Israel unfaithful when they worship at the feet of other idols? because they have rejected the Lord their God and are now giving allegiance to someone else. It's the infidelity that Israel is constantly being uh, accused of through the Old Testament. And in this particular case, God is accusing Jezebel and her followers of the same kind of infidelity. And there will be a judgment for those who are unfaithful. Any attempt to compartmentalize our faith is doomed to fail by the leading of the Holy Spirit. Because every part of our lives is sacred. And the work of the Holy Spirit is to make us more and more like Christ. For new Christians, the work of the Holy Spirit is to bring everything under the sovereignty of Jesus Christ so that there are no separate compartments so I can act one way here and one way over here. It's to integrate us completely so that we can be transformed to the image of Christ. That is the work of the Holy Spirit, so that we will one thing, that we are one thing. Everyone who follows Jezebel will reap the same destruction that she will reap. Sort of like Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts in chapter 5. Judgment and death await anyone who rejects faithfulness to Christ. I think one of the reasons that this notion of the possibility of compartmentalization exists is because Greek philosophy has so influenced us in so many ways. The seed of this idea is sort of like the body is bad, but the spirit is good. And, and we unwittingly sometimes reinforce this kind of philosophy. Um, we do that especially at funeral times. But, but that's not the way Israel understood humanity and it's not the way Christians understand humanity. When God looked at us after creation, he proclaimed his creation good and that included our bodies. Death isn't ever good. Death is the enemy, now and always. The Christian doesn't fear death because Christ has defeated death, but death isn't escape. Humans are immortal. And in the Old Testament, the dead went to the place of rest, Sheol, where they awaited the redemption of all things in Christ in the end times. In the Christian mind, Jesus comes proclaiming that The kingdom that will arise at the end of time has already begun. The resurrection of Christ proves that Jesus has authority over death and hell and death no longer needs to be feared. Caesar doesn't have authority in this realm and because death has been defeated, I have no need to fear Caesar anymore. And because death has been defeated, I have no fear of death anymore. And because Christ is on the throne, there's some things I can risk now in the body right now that no one else can risk because they don't have the same assurance as I have. Why do you think the early Christians became known so quickly for caring for the sick and the ill? It's because they had confidence that they didn't have to fear death or Caesar. And so they were willing to risk their lives to care for those that other people would shun and stay away from because the Christians had excellent promises and that they knew their life was safe in the hands of Jesus Christ. What did these early Christians believe about the life to come? This is what they believed. Those who died in service to the kingdom were held in the conscious love of God And in the conscious presence of Jesus, their lives continued on. And they waited with God until the day of judgment or the day of fulfillment. And then they would receive new bodies. You see, we are not whole without a body, it seems. And Revelation 6-9 gives us the reminder that the dead in Christ live on. This is just a reminder of what Revelation 6, 9 says. When he broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered for the word of God and for the testimony they had given. They cried out in a loud voice, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, How long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? They were each given a white robe, and the story continues there. Do you understand what's being pictured there? It's the conscious living presence of the saints in the presence of God. And that's what we hope for. We die, we're transformed into the presence of Jesus, and we wait for the consummation of all things when Christ returns. And at some point, when Christ comes in his fullness, he brings a new heaven and a new earth, and we get the kind of bodies that we're going to be promised, and then we have the privilege of living forever in the place that he prepared for us. The problem is this, we're told here that if you are not one to receive a new body and stand in the judgment of God by the blood of Christ, everything else gets swept away. I mean, in that situation, you want to be the one that's left behind, right? Because you're present with Christ in the place that he will be. And that's where we want to be. We want to live with Christ in the place he prepared for us forever and not be swept away when the present earth melts like snow. We have an excellent promise in Jesus Christ. Never miss the point, though, that we're going to be given new bodies. Somehow related to this body, we don't understand how. But for those who live for Christ now and die in Christ, new life is the guaranteed insurance for us by the promise of the Holy Spirit. The spirit of compartmentalization will kill us if we don't weed it out. I think think it's really important that we remember that all of these advices that come from Christ through John are given to the churches, you notice he uses that line, these are, if you have ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches, that's us. All of these advices are given to us because Christ loves us, because he cares about our success. He cares about our participation in his victory over sin and death. This isn't a taskmaster cracking a whip saying, follow the rules. This is one saying, listen, these spirits will destroy you if you don't pay attention, if you don't look carefully, if you don't weed this stuff out by the power of the Spirit. I want you to live successfully as my children. And so these things must be put away from you. Don't forget your first love, your love for Christ and his kingdom, Avoid a spirit of consumerism that will keep you from being fruitful in terms of the kingdom. Don't slip into a, into a spirit of accommodation where your witness for Christ can't be understood. And don't sit on the fence. Make a strong choice in the kingdom of God. Don't attempt to compartmentalize your faith apart from the rest of your life. We have to be just one thing, authentic, children of God, sons and daughters of God, heirs with Christ. It says in this passage that those who are given authority in the kingdom of God, and I'm not completely sure what that will look like in the next age, are those who continue to do the works of God now. And the reward for those who do the works of God now is they will be given the morning star. Well, who's the morning star? It's Jesus, right? Somehow, when the people of God, by the Spirit, do the works of the kingdom, Jesus is present there. So if you're having trouble feeling like God has abandoned you or left you or you you can't seem to pray and have a sense of God's spirit, it's time to do the works of the kingdom of God because his promise is he attends the works of the kingdom of God. And when the spirit says to us, here's an avenue for you to walk. Here's something you can do. Here's here's someone who needs your encouragement. Here's someone who needs your support. Move yourself from your chair and get to action in this way you can be assured that the morning star will be present for all who continue to do the works of the kingdom of God. I've been thinking about an old song we used to sing in my home church and it talked about um, the end of our lives. It talked about, these are the words, when my life work is ended and I cross the swelling tide, when the bright and glorious morning I shall see. I shall know my redeemer when I reach the other side and his smile will be the first to welcome me. I look forward to that day. I look forward to that day when, when Christ will receive me, will receive us as his children into his presence. And we understand that that we'll know him And the reason we know that we'll know him is because through our whole lives, from the time we step into the kingdom, he has been trying to shape us so that we will look more and more like him. And so when we step into heaven, you know what we should be saying to one another? Oh, you know what? I can see his eyes in you. Did you ever do that with a little baby? Does he look more like the mother? Does he look more like the father? Who does he in the family resemble? Well, his hair is sort of curly like his grandfather on his mother's side. And When we get to heaven, we should anticipate that folks will look at us and say, wow, I think you have Jesus's ears, nose, mouth, maybe. Because there's gonna be a family resemblance because we are family. We are family. And the work of the Spirit is to make us look more and more and more like Christ. And on that day, when he returns, we get new bodies. And we become one thing again in the kingdom. And and I don't know what eternity looks like with Jesus. But because we know his character now, we know it's going to be more marvelous than we can imagine. Right? And so we trust him now. We refuse to compartmentalize our faith and live any way we choose in the rest of our lives. But by the work of the Spirit, we become one thing, the children of God given to the world that the world might be saved. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we live in a world that continually tries to lure us away from our values in the kingdom. That tries to trick us into affirming things that we know are not true, but may look comfortable for a time. That causes us to resist at times the work of your spirit as he seeks to transform us. Lord, search our hearts. See if there is any compartmentalization or any accommodation or any loss of love for you present in our hearts and, and tell us about it. Because it's our desire to confess those things. And it's our desire to be transformed by your spirit more and more into your likeness so that we can do the work of the kingdom in your company. And know the joy that always comes when we're working together with you. Bless us toward that end, I pray. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Sing this short chorus with me as we close this morning. In my life, Lord, be glorified, be glorified. In my life, Lord, be glorified today in your church, Lord, be glorified, be glorified, in your church, Lord, be glorified today. I must confess that I am delighted to be the pastor of a congregation that includes so many folks who glorify God so well by their lives. It's a pleasure to see the way you do the work of God and the way you glorify him. And I just ask that it be all of our desire to do that more and more, more frequently, more perfectly, with greater passion so that he can be glorified in our lives together. May God bless you and keep you. May he pour out his spirit in abundance on you so that you may know the joy of walking with his spirit every day and you may live to his glory now and forever. Amen. Go in peace.